Chris O'Connor here. Join our fabulous curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now, let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Any long-time listeners of this podcast will know that there are certain bands and artists that we idolize among all others. After all, we named this podcast after an obscure Nirvana B-side. One of those is unquestionably Neil Young. While I consider myself a huge fan, all his music from 1969 to 79 was golden and monumentally important, and his 1990s output was almost as great. The other curmudgeon in this podcast, Chris, is a bona fide Neil Youngologist. Uncle Neil has a huge hardcore following that shows itself all over the internet and social media, but Mr. Christopher O'Connor's knowledge of all things Neil ranks right up there with the best of them. The reason I mention this is because it's pertinent to this episode, which will cover Neil Young's archive series. Since 2009, Young has been consistently releasing both previously unreleased studio recordings and extremely well-recorded live performances that span his entire career. The volume of such rivals what the late Prince reportedly still has locked up in his vault. The unreleased studio work has so far been released as two volumes, each a multi-disc box set, the first covering 1963-72 to and the second covering 1972-76. to The third multi-disc box set is due to come out hopefully before the year ends, hence the impetus for this episode. The live performances have so far the key words being so far, been released as 17 live albums classified as the quote-unquote performance series. I have several of these in my personal collection, so I can attest to their brilliant quality. But if you don't want to scour through every single disc of the box sets or all of the live releases, have no fear, the curmudgeons are here. In particular, Chris will provide a public service by giving you his expertly picks from both the studio and live recordings of Young's daunting archive. And of course, I'll be here to give my feedback. If you're worried about access to these recordings, here's a hint. Everything is on YouTube, trust me. So, without further ado, welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report the best of the Neil Young archives so far. So Art, uh, Neil Young is always an interesting, interesting uh, guy to follow. And he's uh, made some news uh, this week. Uh, One, he's announced he's boycotting Twitter 
or X or whatever yes. Elon Musk calls it because of Musk's uh, anti-Semitism. And yeah. so Young is taking another stand that doesn't really mean much of anything, uh, <laughs> at, at, at least fiscally. But yeah. then also he's getting so he's getting praise for that. But on the other end, he's getting flack because apparently he played a private party held by the billionaire owner of clothing company Canada Goose mm. up, up there north of the border. So, uh, well, he, he's doing his patriotic Canadian duty. Yeah, for a billionaire <laughs> at a private party uh, in Canada, so it's okay, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the the story I read about it says that you know these 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 billionaires and these money guys are, are willing to spend big money, like the the rapper Flo Rida, I guess is making a <laughs> is making a killing playing bar mitzvah uh, bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs. <laughs> yeah, go. Okay, go he, he doesn't. He he's not having any hits, so he might as well do that. Yeah, well, but the hits he has, I mean, he, you know, they made him a lot of money and they're making him a lot of money in licensing. But anyway, we're not talking about Flo Rida. We're talking about Neil Young on this episode. Uh, uh, Arturo alluded to it in our opener. Uh, he's a personal hero of mine. So this has been a fun couple of weeks immersing myself uh, in these archives. The aim has not been to find the best per se, but the stuff that's most interesting to me and and 10 records and 10 follies from his archives that I feel tell a story. So that's really what we're doing. Uh, any thoughts, uh, additional thoughts about the archives before we get going? Or Yeah, it's a lot to plow through. Um, unfortunately, they're all like pretty much everything's on YouTube. So yeah. uh, you pretty much go and check it out on your own. But it's a lot to plow through. And I'll, I'll give my thoughts uh, when I uh, when I lead us into uh, this list of your choices, Chris. But sure. uh, uh, needless to say, um, it's frustrating to go through in a good way um, because of how much stuff that he's just like left, like he's pulled behind and and stashed that he should not have stashed. Hey, he, he's he's a modern day artist. Uh, who needs quality control anymore? <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, but, I know. I mean, yeah, he, he's a pioneer of what King Gizzard is doing now. <laughs> yeah, per, well, pretty much, although he never did it five, six, seven times a year. Yeah, uh, right. He, maybe he wanted to, but uh, yeah. that that's why he had a label. Uh, right. You know where they don't really have quality control problems and, and all the stuff that flows is gold rather than shit, right? Gee, where is that? That is a place we know as the Parallel Universe. Uh, yes, folks, we are crossing over into the space-time continuum, other side of that continuum. And uh, things over there are uh, noticeably different, uh, as in blue is green and you know uh, black is white. But not only that, but rock is still predominant. Uh, you know, long live rock. Well, there it is long, it is longing and living and still rocking out. And uh, it's, uh, it's the hits and rock artists are still... Uh, the cultural or the leaders of the cultural zeitgeist. Uh, long way of saying this is a segment in which we cover new and newish records by contemporary artists we think that you should uh, know about and go check out and go dig uh, yourself. That said, Arturo, uh, who are you introducing to the masses in this week's or in this episode's parallel universe? Yes, in a parallel universe where good music is really in the mainstream. Jamila Woods would be a star, I think. Um, she has an album came out this year called Water Made Us. It's her second or third. I think it's her second one. Hailing from Chicago, Jamila Woods is she's an R&B soul singer, songwriter, 
who manages the rare trick of crafting a thoroughly modern R&B sound with a very strong pop sensibility, managing the peaks and valleys of romantic relationships and dealing with expectations before embarking on relationships are hardly the most original lyrical themes, uh, especially in a genre so romance-obsessed as R&B. But when Woods sings the songs with such conviction and such a subtly tender voice. And when the song craft is this strong and supported by crisp production, the tried and true lyrical themes and tropes seem refreshed. She also doesn't suffer from musical ADD, like so many <laughs> artists these days do. She doesn't feel the need to stuff her music with as many shifting rhythms and complex chord progressions as possible. Wood know, Woods knows the value of tastefully writing the groove and keeping it simple. The song Tiny Garden is one of the most sublime slices of R&B pop you'll hear all year with an earworm chorus. Wolf Sheen sees Woods pulling out the acoustic guitars and delivering some great folk soul. Boomerang and Still are the kind of indie pop inspired soul that The Weeknd wishes he could do as well. Uh, Head First, which closes the album, is a is R&B soul as mantra, a sensual plea for emotional disarmament that's really affecting and really tender and endearing, actually. Uh, and all of this done in the name of the redemptive power of love. It sounds cheesy, but she does it well and she executes it well and convincingly. This is just a really rock solid, mostly airtight R&B record that gets better with each listen. I give it a solid four out of five stars. Chris? Yeah, I will give it up to her for her relative minimalism compared to some of her uh, contemporaries, uh, as you yeah. said. Uh, problem with that, though, is that uh, at least the first half of the record uh, suffers from some sameness. Uh, and not only that, but she has this penchant for these uh, short spoken interludes and uh diversions uh from uh from the proceedings which kind of drag uh things down and so i'm not necessarily as enthusiastic about this record as you are however there are a couple of great uh songs on the second half i especially like thermostat mm. uh which is a which is a nice uh strong it's great bedroom soul and and just you know great uh, romantic longing uh, and with a superb groove. And then there's also a song called Boomerang, which is up-tempo and dancey and a little bit electric, but not to the realm of the cheesy 80s uh, revival. It's yeah. uh, if, if anything, it's a little bit of Rockwell. <laughs> uh, it's not uh, it's not too bad. Uh, I, I never so. I never thought I'd say this, but I'd rather listen to Rockwell than The Weeknd. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Rockwell. Yeah. As, as compared to the weekend. Yeah, for, uh, for sure. Uh, who did it better? Uh, Rockwell. That's a sad commentary. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, I so, yes, I think that this album is worth a listen. I don't think it's that great. And, you know, maybe I need to give it a couple of more listens. Uh, the potential's there. The couple of good songs are there. So let's see what happens. Let's uh, move on to my recommendation uh, or my album uh, for uh, this episode. Uh, this is from a 69-year-old uh, bluesman, originally from Louisiana. His name is Robert Finley, and the album is called Black Bayou. 
so as I said, Finley is 69 years old. Uh, he is a late quote unquote discovery of the um, uh, erstwhile blues, uh, white blues revivalist uh, set, uh, otherwise known as uh, the white guys that go out and find these old black artists and give them a platform. Uh, and uh, this happened for, for him in 2015. He was discovered outside of a show in Arkansas. At the time, he was busking. Uh, apparently, he is legally blind. Uh, he uh, had he was part of the army band when he was stationed in Europe in the early 70s, and he made a living as a carpenter while performing. But then he went legally blind and went the way of the busker set. Uh, but he gets discovered in 2015 uh, and has released four records since then. Uh, also made an appearance and made it to the semis of America's Got Talent, of all things. <laughs> in 2019 so uh there's a little bit of trivia about that that's probably where like most people uh in the country uh, would know him from or remember him from but anyway he has uh, survived his brush with uh cheeseball nbc fame and uh and now has this record out called black bayou uh this is quite an orthodox blues record he's uh delved in soul as well but uh, here it's a pretty solidly uh 12 bar blues type of record and yeah. uh accompaniment uh, there uh, he's a solid guitar player he's got a really growly uh you know really visceral uh voice and he sings these songs and plays these songs like he really 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 means them but here's what makes this sort of unique uh one of the things that's propelled him into this uh uh, status as and uh, growing status as an indie darling is his association with Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. Uh, after he released uh, his first record in 2016, Finley, that is, uh, he was connected with Auerbach, who has produced his albums uh, since then. Uh, also, uh, occasionally bringing in Patrick Carney, the great drummer from the Black Keys, uh, uh, the Black Keys, uh, and uh, who and Carney ends up playing on four songs uh, on uh, on this record. Uh, so, uh, highlights, a uh, song called Sneaking Around, which is an orthodox boogie blues, uh, Carney's on drums, uh, soul burning vocals, and just, uh, just a lot of fun. Uh, another fun track called Can't Blame Me for Trying, which is a really slinky blues rocker, strong backbeat, uh, clearly backed by Auerbach on rhythm guitar. Uh, it, it, his, I mean, Auerbach is a very distinctive guitar player, uh, but the very soulful playing. And the lyrics are an amusing reaction to romantic rejection. Uh, the solos have real bite to him. Uh, he's a guy that he combines muscle and melody really well. Uh, you know, he's not he's not that showy of a player. Uh, he's yeah, it's convention in a sense. It's twelve bar blues, but he has his own little style where it's more melodic uh, than you might think. Uh, other two other songs to mention: "What Goes Around Comes Around," which is more of a soul number, but it's a hard rocking number. And it's a really a it's a sneering, almost gleeful ode to revenge. Uh, the sharp, sharp solos are really tucked deep into the grooves. They it, it it's really uh, the solo a case of the guitar riding the uh, the bass and bass and drum uh, rather than the other way around. And then the album closer is just really amusing. It's a six minute long, uh, almost folk tale, uh, backed by slow blues called Alligator Bait in which uh, Finley tells the story when he was a kid, how his grandfather uh, used him as live bait to hunt and kill an alligator, basically made him stomp out in the mud and step on the alligator and just stand real still 
while grandpa shot the alligator. And then it goes into how he tried to tell on his grandfather to his father and his father laughed his took us off. And uh, a great lyric on that. I was just a lad, but I was old enough to get mad. Uh, so fun listen there. Uh, all around, I would say it's a good three and a half star record. Uh, it's it's notable and it'll it'll make its rounds, I think, on in the indie hipster circuit. Uh, deservedly so. Uh, it's a fun it's a fun kick ass record. I think fans of the Black Keys. Uh, we'll dig it, uh, especially uh, because of the Auerbach and Carney uh, participation uh, in it. Arturo? Yeah, this is a solid, well-done Southern blues album. I particularly like the swampy groove of a living out a suitcase and the folky, funky gospel blues. My only real complaint is that as a vocalist, Finley can be a little too histrionic, a little too overwrought. Like he's trying too hard to convince us of his blues credentials. You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, this album came out, like you said, on Eagle Eye Sound, which is the record label owned by Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. Like all the blues and old school R&B soul albums that Eagle Eye Sound releases, none of them are bad. But none of them are particularly great either. You know, They're, Mm -hmm. they're groovy. They're cool to have in the background. They sound good, but they ultimately don't leave much of a lasting impression, nor do they beckon repeated listens. Just like every other Eagle Eye sound release, it's just pretty good. Okay, what's next? (laughs) Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. So it's pretty well established and well known that Neil Young is one of the most prolific artists uh, in rock and or not just rock, but music history, period. Uh, I mentioned that uh, he has so much stuff that he has never released that he has kept in his personal archives. And like I said, in the parameter setter, he started releasing all this stuff, both live and studio uh, in 2009. And the thing about it is that it's infuriating as a Neil Young fan, which I mean, Chris, you're 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 the Neil Young fanatic. I'm just a really strong fan. But even then, it's really infuriating for me that considering so much crap he put out in the 1980s <laughs> and post 1990s, that so much great material was held back. You know, in 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 the uh, instead of so much stuff was held back in favor of much 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 inferior stuff that he would actually put out. It's really infuriating. And and I think it's a good thing he's releasing these archives because number one, we get to see what he held back 
Two, it's an alternative to like the horrible new music that he's been putting out since, you know, since the mid to late noughties. So that's just why I, I'm really fascinated by Neil's archives, even if I don't really delve into them as much as a hardcore Neil fan does. Occasionally, I'll peek in to see what's there. For example, like the Way Down in the Rust Bucket set, live set from 1990, because I'm a big fan of the Ragged Glory era, Neil Young. You know, things like that. So what we're doing here is that since, you know, Chris, I defer to you when it comes to all things uh, Neil Young. So basically... Chris, you are, I def, like I said, I defer all things Neil Young. I defer to you. Chris, you are going to introduce not necessarily the 10 best of the archives, but going from the oldest releases to the newest releases in, an, uh, in the archives so far. That's the key. Those are the key words so far from the oldest to the newest releases that tell a story of these archives both live and previously unreleased studio recordings. Right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the spirit of the archives, uh, yes, as, as you said, Artur, it's, it's twofold. One, it is an actual archive. And so sort of the him curating the, the best of what he considers the best uh, in terms of his live uh, output and his live recordings and then also his unreleased uh, studio stuff. So this is... Uh, Neil Young controlling a lot of this stuff has been out there in various yeah. forms for years as bootlegs, yeah. or there's been myth uh, about uh, some of these, but this mm. is Neil Young getting to be the official curator of his own uh, catalog. So it's kind of like the Neil Young Museum. So there's that fascinating part. And then you also uh, hit a really strong point, which is to say that there's this uh, there's this golf ball sized hole uh, between 1980 and 1989 or 88, basically the 80s, where uh, he was in a real creative uh, funk. And uh, he was, you know, with the exception of Trance, which Arturo and I both love from 82. Uh, I'm, not, put, I'm not a fan of that record. Oh, I thought I thought you always liked that record. No, okay. no I never liked that. No, I, I love it. <laughs> uh, but with the, with the exception of that, he put out some really god-awful uh, concept records. One, a rockabilly record. One, an old-school country record. Uh, a really uninspired crazy horse record, uh, a jazz record, which has a couple of amusing songs and one great song, which uh, or actually one great song that came out of that wasn't released on the album, but ended up uh, on Freedom, uh, Crime in the City. Right. Uh, so it, it kind of makes the, you know, kind of writes the record in the sense that, yeah, he did hold back uh, some stuff. And that becomes apparent when he releases some of these things from the 70s. That you know, some of these things didn't see the light of day until either the very late 80s or uh, the early to mid uh, 90s. And so, yeah, he is sort of correcting the record and he is doing a make good uh, in acknowledgement of, of that drop off. So uh, really interesting stuff. And and like Arthur said, I think that there is a story to be told where you see the evolution of Neil as an artist, uh, as a performer, uh, as a songwriter. You see him in his various periods. And you see his peaks and you see his repeaks and then you see, uh, you know, some tendencies that uh, that Neil had, one of which we'll uh, name here. He had this really annoying tendency to shelve good albums in favor of not so good albums. Yeah, that's uh, what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, he, he, yeah, he did that. He did that several times in the 70s. Uh, he did it a couple more times uh, in the 90s and uh, in the early 2000s, as we'll uh, discuss. 
So uh, to really get going, uh, so I've picked 10 records, not necessarily the best, but ones that fascinate me that I find really, really interesting that help tell this uh, tell this story. And uh, I guess as in any story, we should start pretty close to the beginning. Yeah. And uh, this is a disc. It, it's never been formally released. It's disc three of volume one of the archives. That's something we should mention, that there's two box sets that uh, Neil has released over the last 15 years. Uh, one of the volume one covers the years 1963 to 1972. And volume two covers the years 1972 to 1976. Both uh, both box sets are 10 discs in total. Mm. So this one that I'm talking about first is disc three of volume one of the archives. Uh, this is a show known as Live at the Riverboat that was recorded in February of 1969 at a coffee house in Toronto. And uh, this is fascinating because let's just put it this way. Neil, Neil ends this set by taking an audience request. And so this is Neil. Uh, he's 23 years old at, at the time of this recording. He's still trying to find his footing as a solo artist. He even says at one point in his sort of uncomfortable banter with the uh, audience that he's hasn't played that many uh, shows on his own and is still kind of finding his way. And, you know, you can tell, you know, at, at various points in the recording, he uh, he complains about the, the humming in his mic. And he also asks yeah. for uh, a change in the lighting uh as well and and he tries to tell stories but it really comes across as like dopey hipster uh uh yeah. like stoner kind of yeah. stuff and so just just really kind of not standoffish but almost like you know charmingly goofy mm -hmm. uh so but he gets into this album and at the time you know he's still you know he's still kind of doing things not you know a little bit more conventionally he's really trying that you know he became known for his first take vocals where it was more yeah. about the feeling than anything but at this right. point he's still singing for real yeah. and the uh the vocals here on live at the riverboat are absolutely just gorgeous uh and um he's got a cover that buffalo springfield did this cover it's an old guess who song called flying on the ground is wrong mm. which uh the original by the guess who which you know western canada's finest bob dylan uh uh ripoffs uh they uh it's very garage poppy in neil's hand it becomes this beautiful folk ballad the ballad that just has this real emotional uh depth befitting of its translator uh and then he also there's also an unbelievably beautiful rendition of broken arrow which uh was one of his foremost songs uh, that he did with uh, Buffalo Springfield. And so gone are the sound effects and sort of the grandeur with the the strings and all that. And it's just him and him and his guitar uh, worth pointing out that it's only his guitar, no harmonica. So it's, it's just acoustic guitar and Neil's voice and just really, really lovely. Uh, and then, like I said, at the end, he takes a request for expecting to fly, which is another one of his uh, minor Buffalo Springfield hits and uh it's just kind of funny to hear him to hear him do that as if he's just like some dude like collecting quarters <laughs> and, and taking tips especially, especially a song like that it's so heavily orchestrated and yeah in the buffalo springfield album right exactly with the jack nietzsche string arrangements and and everything there but but here it's just him it's just him and a guitar and so uh, if you this is a testament to neil's original earnest and aloofness but also to the fact that when he sang with purpose, he was just a lovely, uh, beautiful singer. 
Yeah. And, you know, his voice just carried a real uh, resonance to it. And this is just, as I said, this is an early snapshot of where Neil was as a solo artist from February of 69. Arturo, any thoughts? Yeah, this is Neil performing in front of what, 50 people? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. I, I think the reason his voice sounds so good here is because this is still very, very early in his solo career, and it hasn't really taken off yet. Therefore, the months and months of the yearly tour grind haven't yet taken a toll on his voice and hardened it yet. Also, the between-song banter isn't quite as clever, nor as confident, nor as smooth nope. as it would be just two years later yep. when uh, his career has properly taken off and he's playing bigger venues to many more people. Also, the material in his solo acoustic shows would drastically improve as he would start making one classic album after another, or as this archive series shows, one unreleased classic album after another. Um, that being said, this is still a nice little aural document of an artist on the cusp of greatness, akin to uh, some bootlegs out there of the embryonic Led Zeppelin playing in yeah. small clubs in late 1968, or the Doors performing at the Matrix Club in San Francisco in early 1967 before sure. they exploded in popularity. Right. The latter album, by the way, by the Doors. The latter is digitally remastered and released earlier this year, by the way. Um, okay. I like I like this live at the riverboat, but when it comes to solo acoustic, Neil, I'll take the Toronto at Massey Hall show from 1971. Yeah, you and a lot of other people would would take that show. Uh, and yeah, it's it, that's very, very good. Uh, not quite as good as another uh, one of his solo acoustic shows from around the same period that I chose for this list. But uh, that's the one that most people, uh, if if they've heard of anything from the archive, there's two records in particular that they would know of. Uh, Massey Hall is one of them. Uh, one one thing I'll say about Live at the Riverboat, this is that's it's the best of his early output. I mean, is is it are the songs here as strong? as the stuff that would come just a couple of years later no but you, you still have the old laughing lady you still have sugar mountain which right. as we as we find out from the banter on here and on another record he didn't not a huge fan of but it's still <laughs> one of his best early songs and then a couple of songs from his debut record uh a, you know and some buffalo springfield stuff and uh and so it's 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 the best of early neil but this is again it's it's just the the non-confident banter and the just beautiful vocals. That's that's why to check you need to check this out. So, uh, as we know, uh, nineteen sixty nine was really a seminal year uh, for Neil because he starts it in that you know he's just getting started and just finding his footing. And at some point along the year, uh, a little bit later on in the year, he hooks up with this band, uh, this Bay Area band uh, called Crazy Horse, that was fronted by uh, a, a very talented guy named Danny Witten. And uh, featured uh, his bandmates, Billy Talbot and Ralph Molina on bass and drums. Well, uh, he hooks up with them and finds a real inspiration in the sort of the countryish rock sort of uh, more uh, sort of freestyle. He, he starts to find himself more as um, as a uh, soloist, as an electric uh, guitar soloist. And he releases, obviously, later uh, in that year, Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere, which is an absolute classic. Uh, it features yeah. Down by the River and Cowgirl uh, in the Sand. And, and Cinnamon Girl. And Cinnamon Girl. And so from that, uh, he was able to start, I mean, his his profile uh, went up. 
uh, and he was able to start touring theaters. And uh, one of these early shows is, is documented on uh, the next record uh, that uh, we're featuring from the archives. Uh, this actually, it, it got a standalone release, mm. uh, I believe, in, in 2009. It's one of the earliest yeah. standalone releases, but it's also disc five of volume one of the archives. And it's live at Fillmore East, which is just this unreal crazy horse sh uh, show from uh, 1970 specifically march uh, 6th and 7th is are, are the shows that this disc is called from it uh at that point he was doing what he became famous for which is he would have an acoustic set followed by an electric set well with the exception of cinnamon girl this uh, album captures uh six of the seven uh, songs that dominated the live or excuse me the electric set yeah. and just really uh, just um, awesome stuff and there's a couple of things to note uh producer jack nietzsche uh who uh young had a musical relationship dating uh, back to buffalo springfield uh, with his on electric piano and turns out nietzsche was actually part of uh briefly was a was a member of crazy horse and played on their first record uh standalone record which bombed they did a record without uh neil and it bombed and so nietzsche ended up going his separate ways but he plays electric piano on this record and, and it adds a surprising amount of texture and groove uh especially to down uh, by the river i mean it's just really really strong uh so uh, a couple of notable things about uh, this record uh danny witten obviously he, he was a star i mean he had a a certain clever minimalism that uh when combined with uh with young's you know rapid fire uh, and just burning solos were just made for almost jazz like quality to what they were doing. You know, like it was almost a cross cutting uh, rhythm guitar that sort of set up the uh, the backbone for Neil's uh, soloing. And so Winton was a really, really talented guy, hell of a, a backup vocalist. Uh, the version, the uh, source version of Come On Baby, Let's Go Downtown from 1974's Tonight's The Night. Yeah. is on uh this record uh it's a little bit longer here it was cut down on the uh on that tonight's the night album for efficiency but a hell of a song uh absolute you know hell of a song uh there's i mean the soloing on down by the river and cowgirl in the sand is unimaginably great uh even better than it is on uh the the studio album especially down by the river that's just neil in, in rare form in rarefied air just uh, following along with that uh, also notable to point out that uh this set this six song set includes winter long which a mm. uh, really influential single for a lot of uh, grunge and a lot of college rock uh, uh bands in the 80s including the pixies uh which was released as a single it was never part of an album but it came out of what was it, about 1973 74 uh, i think it was uh, it came out on it came out on on the beach in 1974 and by the way tonight's the night was 75 not 1974 okay gotcha uh but winter long by the way is not on on the beach uh maybe it comes from the same recording but it's, it's not, not on it's not on on the beach oh really Tr okay, trust me well, uh it was released on decade uh that's where that was its formal release that's where it first okay. saw the light of day decade and i believe 77 but uh but yeah but what here we have an early version of Winterlong that's just absolutely rock balls out you know and with that electric piano and with Danny Witten on uh, electric guitar or on rhythm guitar it's just really really fascinating uh f fascinating stuff and that's kind of like deep dark you know uh, in in the archives Neil that Winterlong yeah. was was hovering at, at a show that early um yeah. you know way right. before the Stray Gators and Ben Keith got their hands on it so 
Uh, Arturo, thoughts about here uh, this live at Fomar East record? Yeah, I was going to ask you about the the version of "Come On Baby, Let's Go Downtown" that is is awfully some uh, similar to the version on tonight's tonight. But yeah, you said yeah. it's the same. It's the same it, one. It, it, it is the source recording for oh, uh, for that album. Yeah, th- this performance was recorded exactly fifty three years ago, and mm-hmm. it sounds like it was recorded yesterday. It just yeah. reminds you that uh, reminds you that recording technology back then wasn't quite as bad as people like to think nowadays. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, especially in rock and roll. I mean, you know, they, they well, then again, he also had some aces that uh, were working for him, you know, right. like David Briggs and, sure. and folks like that, that were just like master engineers. So, yeah. I mean, that, that kind of, that kind of helps. Uh, so, yeah, it just, it's just a really, really uh, great, uh, great show and just a testament to, the power of uh, the the early power of crazy horse. And it's kind of a sad, you know, what could have been like yeah. where, you know, how crazy horse would have developed with Danny Witten as a, as a co-songwriter and, and right. a real kind of uh, spiritual compatriot with young on the guitars. Uh, so yeah. there's a little bit of mournfulness to be had there, uh, which definitely translates into the, the next uh, mm. uh, r- record on, uh, right. uh, on this list. Uh, this is from 1971, and it's called Royce Hall. And as the name suggests, it comes from a, a full show recording solo show that Neil Young did at Royce Hall on the campus of UCLA there, oh. out there in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, you hinted at this earlier or, or, that his confidence grew by leaps and bounds. So yeah. that, you know, this is January 30th, 1971. So, in a little less than two years, he's really gotten a swagger and yeah. really kind of found his voice. And so the difference in in confidence and banter between these records is really marked. And not only that, but also the rawness, like he's really going for it at this point. And so there's, you know, the material is that much better. And so he, it's, it, it allows him to be that much more expressive uh, with his voice. Uh, this album, by the way, is part of what's known as the official bootleg series. Mm. And uh, and as that title connotes, this is stuff that's been out on the bootleg circuit for a long time yeah. that Neil finally, you know, cleaned up, re-engineered, remixed and put out there officially, uh, you know, like this is Neil's uh, endorsed version uh, of of this record. And so uh, a couple of things to say about uh, about this show, uh, it's a little bit more. I mean, he he's mixing instruments he's got piano in there he's got harmonica but it's just him and uh for the most part it's it's a strong show and the notable thing the most notable thing about it is it's also this is where the source recording for needle and the damage done yeah uh, from harvest is taken from and so obviously because you you know how how could you possibly duplicate this that performance elsewhere yeah, it's just yeah. it's a, it's a singular uh, version of the song, and it's got a really poignant uh, intro uh, before he uh, starts into it. He says, uh, "quote This is a song I wrote about friends of mine, although I didn't know them." Mm-hmm. Uh, and which now keep in mind, uh, Danny Witten didn't die for almost two years after this. Yeah, and yeah. But, but mostly he has Danny Witten and several other people, but mostly Danny Witten in mind when he's talking about the song and about uh a debilitating what at that point had become a debilitating heroin addiction um 
by by Witten. So there's that. And then it's also the source uh, material or the source recording for Love and Mind from the uh, sorely underrated record Time Fades Away, which, uh, Neil, it's a live record, but it, he released in 1973. Uh, so a few other notable things about uh, the performances here. Uh, it includes uh, versions of uh, See the Sky About to Rain, which uh, didn't see the light of day until On the Beach in 74. Uh, it also has a, n- a number of songs from Harvest, which didn't get a release for another year. Uh, and there's also a version of Journey Through the Past on here, which is, uh, uh, I, I actually think is more resonant and more beautiful than the one that shows up on Time Fades Away. And then uh, the highlight of this record, the absolute highlight of it, and it's one of the more joyous sections of any of these records, is a nine-minute run through Sugar Mountain. When again, he, he says you know, in the story, kind of similar to uh, the the uh, the riverboat set, he professes not to like Sugar Mountain, says he wrote it on his 20th birthday, and he said had some sentiments that he doesn't agree with anymore and all that. So he's goofing on the song. But what he does is he manages to turn it into kind of almost like an Arlo Guthrie-ish type of uh, let's build a sing-along. As we go here and we'll, and so here, you know, I'm going to do this and then you're going to sing the chorus and, oh, you have to do it louder next time and all that. And so he manages to turn Sugar Mountain, which is this lilting folk ballad into like almost like an Alice's Restaurant type event (laughs) (laughs) by the end of it. He's got people clapping their hands and singing loudly and, and he's jokesy, he's jokey and folksy all the way through. Uh, It's just kind of a magical uh, feat. I mean, it's a confident performer that has an audience eating out of the palm uh, of his hand. So a great set. And it really, it kind of sets the stage for the next few years because now now he's got this confident he's this confident performer you start to see that he's got this well of material because there's stuff on here that defines albums for the next three or four years <laughs> that that shows up uh, on this record and so it's just it's marvelous uh arturo your opinion yeah, Young had a gift for making large venue shows seem as intimate as playing in front of 20 people in a coffee shop. And you definitely get that feeling here as he's gracious enough to, you know, to provide little details of his personal life as between song banter. And uh, uh, he does that here. And of course, I, like I said earlier, his between song banter gets better <laughs> between 1969 and 1971. Uh, by the way, if you go on YouTube, you can find a video of an actual televised performance of Neil Young playing at the BBC studios from this very same tour. It's a short 30-minute video, so it's a truncated version of his usual set list, but it's worth checking out. I have it, actually. I, I own that video. <laughs> yeah, I've, drive. <laughs> yeah I've, I've, I have to go seek that out. I mean, that's that's one uh, blind spot I've had is, is that show, although I know of it. And I know of its legend. Uh, I'm yeah. surprised he actually hasn't put that uh, out in the archives yet. And who knows? That's coming because yeah. uh, supposedly there's a volume three that's coming sometime in the next couple of years. So uh, we'll... it's supposed to come out like like next year, isn't it? Yeah, it's like next year or 25 uh, is is he's been he's been promising volume three for a while. Um, I assume that it'll probably be like 76 to the present, <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. that uh, he'll, he'll kind of pour out the, uh, the coffers uh, there. So uh, he does this show in 71 as uh, uh, you know, history would have it, 
By then, uh, he's on the rise with Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young with Deja Vu. Uh, He's released after the Gold Rush, which has released a critical acclaim. And a year later, he is releasing Harvest, which blows up into a bestseller and puts him on the charts. Uh, He gets hits, uh, Hard Gold and Old Man uh, out of uh, of that album. And uh, it's regarded as a classic. Uh, I personally put it on, on only four stars. I think there's a couple of duds on it, but you know, I'm I'm in the minority on that one with with Harvest. But what it does is it, now it propels him into being a headliner. So instead of theaters like uh, you know, like Royce Hall, he's now being able to play arenas <laughs> and yeah. uh, and like big theaters and and arenas. And so he's becoming a headliner. But all through it, he's miserable. Uh, he's losing uh, several friends to heroin addiction. His marriage to actress Carrie Snodgrass is starting to have strain, uh, and he's starting to have some problems with a couple of his bandmates, most especially Jack Nietzsche, who legend has it had an affair with Carrie Snodgrass. Uh, And he was so not fond of this late 72, early 73 tour that the uh, the great uh, testament to it or the great monument to it, Time Fades Away, stayed out of print for like more than 30 years, which yeah, when you consider it is really insane. It's the same thing with on the beach that, yeah. you know, Neil, Neil doesn't like to relive bad old times. Yeah. Uh, and so he, he prevented uh, this from coming at back out or time fades away uh, back out that. So, you know, to follow up, I mean, it's real ballsy to follow up uh, an album as clean and as gorgeous and as uh, sing songy as harvest with something like time fades away, which is about as nihilistic as it gets. And just sort of is all over, all over the place, but just has a, a, you know, even the softer stuff has a real kind of uh, anarchic energy uh, to it. Yeah. And so uh, during this period uh, comes our next uh, album from the archives, uh, which was just released in the last couple of years. Uh, This is a a show uh, it's uh, from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, home of Mm -hmm. the Crimson Tide. Uh, February 5th, uh, 1973. Uh, at one point, Young referred to this uh, recording as Time Fades Away 2. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, just saying that it's another, as just a, another uh, testament or sort of uh, recording or uh, sort of totem uh, to this tour. Yeah. And uh, this album and this tour features what I think is his best band. Uh, I think his best backing band, uh, which was the Stray Gators which for this tour included Ben Keith, who was uh, uh, his main sideman for his countryish uh, albums for years and decades. Uh, he played steel, lap steel guitar, slide guitar, dobro, and other uh, instruments uh, of that of that sort. Uh, you had Tim Drummond on bass, uh, Nietzsche was on piano, and Kenny Buttry was on drums. And so the album starts off with two really good solo performances. You have a lovely rendering of Here We Are in the Years, which is a song from his debut uh, self-titled record, and a faithful rendition of After the Gold Rush, uh, which is the title track from one of the greatest albums of all time, After the Gold Rush. And then he brings out the Stray Gators, and they do a run through several, like four Harvest songs. And the amusing thing here is just how bored Young sounds. When you compare his vocal performances from this show, you know, later on in the set, like before and after, he sounds way more engaged and way like more into it than these. He sounds like he's 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 airmailing it in. 
And I think that, you know, part of what gives away his mindset is when he introduces Heart of Gold, he he tells a story which he says is half true, which probably means is not true. But he says that they were approached about doing Heart of Gold as a um, 60 minute commercial uh, that would be syndicated on a radio called Burger of Gold, <laughs> which which is very funny. Uh, but it doesn't matter. The stuff is still fantastic. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, out on the weekend is about as good as you would imagine. Uh, Alabama, uh, is, you know, is pretty rocked out and has a really nice, uh, little, uh, piano solo from Jack, uh, Jack Nietzsche. Uh, and then the second half of the record is where he really gets into, okay, that's the stuff I have to play. Now here's the stuff I want to play. And you get early versions of Lookout Joe and New Mama. From tonight's the night new mama here uh really gets uh it's it's bashed out on the tonight's the night record it's an acoustic guitar with uh like five or six part harmony which is just gorgeous and it's just this lilting gorgeous little ballad here it's just bashed out i mean they even uh, he, he announces it as a brand new song and so they're still kind of exploring it but it's really kind of just bashed out and messy which is which is kind of cool. And then Lookout Joe uh, has more of a nihilistic uh, and faster edge to it than it does in the uh, studio version. Uh, and then he also he has uh, a, versions of Time Fades Away and Don't Be Denied, which mm -hmm. are the two best songs from Time Fades Away that here get more. Uh, they're more searing. They're more they're a little bit. Uh, it's weird. Uh, Time Fades Away is faster and Don't Be Denied is slower. But they yeah. both, but they both get more fire and more magic. Um, I, I much prefer the version of "Don't Be Denied" on a, on the album, the live album. Time fades away. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, it's tighter. I mean, yeah. it's it's less repetitive, but but there's a slow burn to it that is a little bit surprising. It's uh, it's you know, it's more of a it's more menacing. I think here it's not better, but it is more menacing. But I I, I kind of like the version of "Time Fades Away" here. Uh, because, you know, Ben Keith is kind of out of his mind, maybe literally with some of the lap steel stuff yeah. uh, that he's doing here. Uh, so again, this is an, another one of those like snapshots in time of this band on this tour playing these mind blowing shows. Um, what say you about Tuscaloosa, Arturo? Yeah, there are 11 tracks on this live release. And at the time of its recording, 1973, five of the 11 tracks were unreleased or unrecorded at the time. Yep. Uh, it's fascinating how young, no matter how popular he got, was always all too willing to play songs no one or at least no casual fans had ever heard before. You know, yeah. He, he, uh, he was always like this, and he kind of still is. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you never know what he's going to whip out at any given moment. Like, he'll have works in progress uh, mixed in there with the established hits. And then again, there's there's the stuff he has to play versus the stuff he wants to play, which right. was definitely at work during this uh, Time Fades Away tour and right. when he came into Tuscaloosa. And again, you can tell. Uh, it's almost worth listening for that because it's it's these wonderfully orthodox performances live performances of the stuff from harvard harvest you know great version yeah. of old man you know really great uh, steel guitar playing uh, on that from ben keith uh out on the weekend is fantastic harvest itself is really nice but then again it, and then it turns into time fades away and it's like bash 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 and it's okay now it's time to break the rules motherfuckers yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. so it's, it's so and that's kind of a theme that runs through it 
So uh, moving on. So, you know, here over the next couple of years, there's a couple of performances, by the way, that should be mentioned. Uh, he's got one of those official bootlegs is called Carnegie Hall. That's a Carnegie Hall show from 74. It was, you know, during this period that he started to really kind of spread his wings and, and as Arturo just alluded to, get more adventurous with what he was doing and, and what he was introducing and what he was mingling uh, in uh, there. And he goes through that cycle. He starts to pull out of it in, in 76 or 75, 76, when he releases Zuma, which is his follow-up to Tonight's the Night, where it, it's like he's got his you know, he's got his swagger back. So he's he's out of the ditch. He's sobered up a little bit and uh, and he's back to uh, being a dominant, uh, almost like Godzilla-like figure uh, in his in his shows. And it in 76, you really start to get the height. Uh, this is young at, at his absolute height as a performer, as an icon, as a as a myth maker in terms of how of how he's performing and, and what he's pulling off on stage. And the next record, I think, uh, is just uh, stunning in some of its revelations. Uh, this is called Odeon Budokan. And mm -hmm. as that name suggests, uh, half of the stuff is taken from a show in uh, at the Hammersmith Odeon in London. And half of the stuff is taken from the Budokan venue in Japan, uh, made famous most especially by Cheap Trick of all bands. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, both of these shows were recorded in March of 1976. And, and it's structured the way a lot of the old shows are. The, the acoustic set is taken from London and the electric side or mostly electric side is taken from Budokan. And uh, so what you have here again, he's just reached a confidence and he's just reached a glory in his performance. There's an amazing version of after the gold rush here. And again, you know, this is probably I think like the third, the second or third after the gold rush that's appeared on this list uh, so far. But this one is amazing, and it's worth a listen to this record just for this performance alone. He sings it in a lower, more resonant register, so it's not the it's not the freaky falsetto or the uh, yeah. or the, the the whiny, you know, the high whiny. Uh, it adds real gravitas and mystery to the lyrics. Uh, and there's a lovely harmonica solo in place of the trumpet from the studio version. And so it's just this, it's just this achingly gorgeous, really committed performance of it. And uh, one of the things, and, and this shows up, you know, in uh, this, he did this uh, in the Tuscaloosa performance of After the Gold Rush. But here it really stands out because of its phrasing. He changes one of the lyrics to, we got Mother Nature on the run in, 19, in the 1970s. Yeah. As opposed to look at Mother Nature on the run. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it, it really stands out and it, it really kind of hit, hits me right in the nuts uh, when I uh, when I hear it. And then he also has another amazing acoustic performance of a song. And we'll talk a little bit more about it uh, here in a bit uh, called String Man. And which I personally think is the best of his songs. It's either it's between that and Winter Long as a song that never got a formal studio album release. It's the best song, I think, that never made it to a formal record. Uh, and just a really just gorgeous uh, ballad, just piano ballad. And see, the funny part is, is that it it shows up here and on an unreleased uh, studio record that we'll talk about. And also on MTV Unplugged 17 years later, yeah. the 1993 uh, MTV Unplugged record. And he, and it's just it, it, he doesn't get cute in any of the versions. It's just him and a piano. 
Yeah. And uh, and it's just really it's it's an elegy for for a guy that, uh, you know, is is really struggling and going through the motions. And there's a, a wonderful lyric on the song, uh, quote, you can say the soul is gone and close another door. Just be sure that yours is not the one. Mm. Uh, just really, uh, really powerful stuff. And then on the electric side, uh, the amazing thing about it is the economy of it. I mean, it's almost shocking. Uh, he's got a seven minute long version of Cortez the Killer mm. and a five minute long version of Cowgirl in the Sand. <laughs> truncated versions. <laughs> yeah. And it would, truncated, but not, but, but naturally, you know, it's not, okay, we're truncating it. It's not a melody, you know, it's not a medley. You know, it's yeah. not like a here you were making a ditty out of it. He bashes them the fuck out. Right. And and he really gets, you know, like Cortez only seven minutes long, including the 42nd fuzz and bang outro. Right. Uh, and so he's just really and the the solo is just as incendiary is as it is on the on the studio album. Uh, Cowgirl in the Sand has just really great, uh, you know, kind of Zuma style. Uh, at that point, he was starting to come up with a really singular style using Old Black, his uh, 1953 Gibson Les Paul, and uh, really comes out and uh, just really, really strong, really powerful. And so, yes, the version of Cowgirl in the Sand on Live at Fillmore East is better <laughs> because it's it's the 16 and a half minute version with Danny Witten and it just gets to unbelievable heights. But here it's almost more impressive because you get the same kind of burn and churn in five minutes. And so uh, there's an economy uh, to that. That's that's really, really impressive. So, uh, Arturo, what's your thought about Young in 76 and about what you hear on Odeon Budokan? Yeah, as good as this is, I really wish Neil would release the whole show from the Hammersmith Odeon in London and the whole show from the Budokan yeah. in Tokyo. Uh, when I listen to a live album, I like to hear a complete show, yeah. which is why I often defer to well-recorded bootlegs, yeah. a la Fish or The Grateful Dead. Uh, that being said, um, the, the version here of The Old Laughing Lady is a much more powerful song, and the oh, lyrics yeah. really resonate more when it's stripped of its orchestral arrangement and stripped down to just a voice and acoustic guitar. Like you alluded to, uh, the vocals and the piano ballad uh, on the piano ballad string men are actually more affecting and just better than the studio version from the Chrome Dream Sessions. Like I said, I love this set. I, I just, I just want to hear the whole shows, not just yeah. you know, get through this piece and this piece and Frankenstein them together. I'm yeah, not into that. That's I a good. That's a shows. that's a good point. Uh, it it should be mentioned that uh, as far as I know, Tuscaloosa and Live at Fillmore East, those aren't complete shows either. Um, like live at Fillmore East is called from two different shows. And, uh, obviously Tuscaloosa is 11 songs from a larger set that, that Neil right. played, uh, that night. And so, so a lot, a lot of this, again, this is sort of like Neil shaping and, and that's a good uh, excuse to bring this up as a reminder. This is yeah. Neil curating his own narrative. Right. And, you know, sort of releasing things the way that he wants them to, and just sort of, you know, here's here's the strongest thing that I can release. And like you said, the Frankenstein approach with Odeon Budokan. Uh, yeah. Although I don't know. I mean, I guess you could do Odeon Budokan as a box set, right? You know, like discs one and two Odeon and discs three and four Budokan. Yeah. Yeah. Before, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or or it's like Odeon. 
Ooh, well, the, the Odeon Hammersmith, the Odeon London shows. I mean, that was like a two or three night residency. Yeah. So y- you can make just a whole, you know, set based on a box set based on those shows. Yeah. You know. and, and that and that's the thing. It's you know the part of the archives is is uh, is Neil's attempt to you know la- you know lasso uh, you know lasso a million termites. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like you know, let's find the termites out of the the million of them that that make the most sense. So yeah. that's kind of the exercise uh, there. On this episode, we give you our picks for the best of Neil Young's archive series. For the next episode, we're going to explore the brief career of one of the most fascinating and, frankly, tragic rock band stories of the 1990s, Blind Melon. Exactly 30 years ago, yours truly curmudgeons befriended each other as freshman students at Syracuse University, and among the many bands we bonded over, One of them was Blind Melon and their self-titled debut album, which Chris in particular was extremely enthusiastic about. A year after that album came out, it exploded in popularity thanks to the huge success of the single No Rain. Blind Melon had an underratedly original sound that seemed to split the difference between the neo-hippie jam band movement that was starting to catch fire at the time and soulful southern rock. They would put out just one more album before lead singer and musical guiding force Shannon Hoon died of a drug overdose in 1995. We're going to explore their all-too-brief career and analyze their classic debut album track-by-track in our next episode as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you Blind Melon is the best CD I have. Yes, folks, those were the exact words Chris uttered on One Fall Night in 1993. All right, so now we're gone from one part of these 10 recommendations that are mostly live. Now we're going to segue into the mostly studio or previously unreleased studio stuff. Chris. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, part of the archives, it's not all live uh, stuff. It's unreleased studio stuff. And not only that, but like some of the stuff on the archives box sets are actually like the performances or from the recordings that were used on the album. And they're just right. sort of slightly different versions, but you also get B-sides and, and unreleased singles and all that. But within that, and as we said earlier, Neil had this penchant for making albums and then shelving them yeah. and uh, and you sort of making making the choice to stand down. Well, he had two famous, and we're going to cover them both here at number six. Uh, he had two really storied ones that, that grew into proportion of myth and were uh, the subject of bootlegs. Uh, for a long time and incomplete bootlegs, by the way, it was it was never the the full the full thing. And so he had two albums that he actually had pre- prepped. Uh, one of them he was intending to release and had an official tape made of it uh, called Homegrown. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was in 1974. And then the second album he made as as an acetate. And I think more to just sort of capture what he was doing. As right. opposed to, you know, he made the acetate and uh, he had given it to his producer, Dave, you know, it was it was being distributed, but almost kind of like, a, hey, here's what I have going on now. Not clear if he ever intended to release it as an album, but that was called Chrome Dreams. 
Right. And so Homegrown and Chrome Dreams, uh, and these are the two Mythical Studio releases as part of this uh, archives. And just in the last several years, he's released both uh, supposedly as intended to be released uh, back then. And they're both magnificent. And so we'll do one at a time. Uh, Homegrown. So this is uh, from 1974. And the story uh, that I've read that, you know, in interviews that Young tells is that he was having a party at his house and he had some friends over and he had a tape from the studio. Uh, one side of it was homegrown and he played that for his friends. Uh, and so, okay, we'll do that. Now the party gets, uh, get, gets a little older and people are drunker and higher. And so, oh yeah, the other side of the tape has got tonight's the night on it. And or the the stuff from the oh. tonight's the night sessions, and so he turns that over, and everybody's like, "Whoa!" And then they basically dared him. They dared him to release that instead of homegrown. <laughs> yeah. And they said, "Oh, okay. Well, that's that's more seems more interesting." And so on that dare, he put out tonight's the night, and he shelved homegrown, which is well, I think his very best album ever. I, I I I'm a tonight's the night fan. Oh yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it as well. I think, I, think it's, I think it's his best record. I think, I think it's maybe one of the 100 best albums ever made. That's just my Yeah, it, it's up there. It's it's definitely, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it has an argument for top 100 for sure. And, you know, it's one of my three or four favorite uh, Neil records. It was the one that drew me to Neil and made me such a fanatical uh, Neil fan in the first place. Uh, and so to talk about Homegrown a little bit, uh, I kind of think that, you know, he for about three years, I guess his his brush with fame uh, after Harvest was so alienating that he kind of did. Oh, that's the anti-commercial route. Oh, let's take that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that he if he had put out Homegrown there in seventy four or seventy five, uh, that could have kept him more commercially viable. And you know he's had a couple of yeah. comebacks since then, but he could have right. like turned back on the juice because there's some really commercial uh, stuff on, on Homegrown. It's it's yeah. kind of it, it's sort of in the vein of Harvest in the sense that it's it's very country and uh, and folk influenced and very acoustic influenced. Uh, you know, it's got some familiar songs that did see the light of day. Uh, Love is a Rose, which became a hit for Linda Ronstadt, is on and right. is on the, the decade uh, double album set from 77. Uh, Star of Bethlehem, which is a gorgeous ballad that he uh, that he co-sang with Emmylou Harris. Uh, that found release on American Stars and Bars, as did a couple of other songs uh, from this record. The opening two songs are uh, separate ways and Try, both of which mm. had you know, huge commercial right. potential, especially Try, because Try is essentially uh, four four waltz time and is is quite lovely. And uh, there's also guest turns on this album from Levon Helm on drums. I think yeah. he's he actually uh, does, shows up on Try, and then Robbie Robertson is on uh, guitar for white line yeah uh, which you know is showing you know kind of what you know one of the aggravating things about neil his penchant for sitting on some of his best stuff white line yeah. didn't get a formal release until 1990 yeah when uh, when ragged glory came out right so it's a little freaky <clears throat> uh to, to, to hear that and to hear an early version it's a it's a pretty version too uh so and then a couple of other highlights there's a version of Homegrown on here. Now, Homegrown uh, found its release on American Stars and Bars. American Stars and Bars essentially is like an odds and sods 
from yeah. you know from songs that were intended for other releases <laughs> it's still a great album though yeah it's 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 a great album because you know the stuff on it was was so good and it's yeah. almost like what could have been uh homegrown and chrome dreams are both better than american stars and bars uh it, it really is but homegrown here you know the, the version that made it to american stars and bars is a, a crazy horse you know pounding it out and obviously it's an ode to weed it's it's just yeah. a, a blatant song about loving weed yeah. Uh, but here it's much more countrified. It's got Ben Keith on it mm -hmm. and a more stray gators, uh, feel to it. It's a different flavor, but it's still really cool. And, <clears throat> and it still kind of rocks, you know, not quite as much as the crazy horse version. And it doesn't have like, you know, Neil soloing on old black, but it's still pretty damn good. Uh, and then there's another highlight on here. It's a little rocker named vacancy which has a real angry edge to it. And it's really stray gators backing at its finest, uh, you know, definitely worth checking out for that. So it's just a real combination of country, you know, country rock classics, uh, like acoustic uh, balladry, and then a couple of near rockers uh, would have been a really, really strong record. And I think probably would have been a commercial hit with one or two uh, singles. I think star of Bethlehem might've been a top 10 hit if he had released sure. it. Gorgeous and, song. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, 74, that's that's close enough in time to harvest that it would have still been it would have still been relevant. And Love is a Rose actually became a modest hit for Linda Ronstadt. So one of those two songs probably would have been a top 10 hit for him. So, you know, he still had it. So uh, any thoughts about Homegrown? Yeah, you listen to this shit and you ask yourself, you know, why in the fucking world would he put these songs on the shelf? Listening to this compilation pisses me off and not because mm -hmm. it sucks. But the exact opposite. I mean, these are these are some of the best songs of the man's career. Most of them, the highlights of albums that would eventually that they would eventually appear on, both in studio and live forms. You know, nothing against American Stars and Bars, which I love, but with the exception of Will to Love, which is perfect on uh, on on the beach, this should have been his 1977 album. You know, yeah, combining the best of Homegrown and Chrome Dreams. Boom, take out Will to Love because Will to Love is just fine on uh, on the beach. The rest of it, boom, make that your 1977 hey, record. Hey, Especially hey, for, Pocahontas and an all acoustic, uh, sorry, Powderfinger, an all acoustic Powderfinger. How about hey, that? Hey, I get to be your fact checking cuz now. Uh, Will to Love is on American Stars and Bars, not on the beach. Oh, which is the one that, that's on on the beach? Uh, there's, well, a, there's a song here. The ver a version here that is on is it is it all am, am I getting no. my, my no there's no there, there's no songs here that are on on the beach okay uh, never okay my mistake. yeah I was so, gonna say so yeah so, so, so your homework love... assignment is to listen on the beach <laughs> <laughs> yeah cl clearly my mistake <laughs> yeah yeah no yeah no problem no problem that's why I'm the Neil Youngologist and you're not right uh, to, yeah so okay yes. So yeah, yes. yeah, Will to Love, Will is, to Love is on American Stars and Bars. Okay, yeah, right. and so let me back up then, and uh, so now you've you've started to cross over into the second record, which is Chrome Dreams, <laughs> right? And Chrome, okay. Chrome Dreams is absolutely fascinating because yeah. uh, what this does is it it you it's the electric stuff. It's homegrown on like a hurricane, uh, right? And and again, Star of Bethlehem. I guess right. you know it wasn't going to make homegrown, but it was it was going to make Chrome Dreams. Yeah. Uh, didn't make either, <laughs> but it ended yeah. up on American Stars and Bars. So the kind of that stuff from American Stars and Bars. And then you get studio acoustic versions of Pocahontas, which uh, it should be noted that uh, the version of Pocahontas that shows up on Chrome Dreams is actually the same recording featured on Russ Never Sleeps. Just uh, the one on, really? 
Yeah, the one on Rust Never Sleeps just has overdubs. Oh, uh, it, you know, it it overdubs on uh, 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 keyboard effects and and backing vocals and and you know real and and drum actually. So, but the but the vocal and the acoustic guitar uh, come from this version of Pocahontas. There's also a a, a version of Sedan Delivery, which is electric. Uh, yeah. and, and rocked out that just not nearly as gnarly and not nearly as nihilistic as it uh, showed up on rust never sleeps uh the acoustic version of powder finger uh unsurprisingly is just beautiful yeah uh, i mean that's yeah. a song no matter how he played it he could have played that on pump organ and it was still been a beautiful right uh you know and it just uh just a, a just a perfect song uh string man uh yeah. shows up on here the studio version of that which again is i think was probably his best unreleased or formally unreleased studio album non-studio album song uh and then uh just a cross-section of other stuff uh, you know will to love and and so kind of take those things and then uh there's also the i think the the real curveball that shows up on chrome dreams is uh, a version of too far gone mm. which you know too yes. far gone he it, it became a staple of some of his shows in the 70s yeah. And or, or some of his sets, especially in the mid seventies, but here it's uh, it's him on acoustic guitar and Frankie San Pedro Poncho, his mm. his uh, replacement guitarist and Crazy Horse uh, on mandolin, uh, yeah. doing the song. Now it doesn't see the light of day. That song didn't see get to an album until 1989's Freedom. Yeah. And of course, on Freedom it rocks balls. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, re it really does. But but mm. here it's it's definitely a country uh, ballad. And so that's the real curveball here. So you, you get these things and it's just extraordinary. And, and as an archival achievement, as a curatorial achievement, yeah. uh, it's it's hard to believe that he had all these recordings on one acetate because had he released it, it would have been <laughs> it would have been his best record. Uh, yeah. or it would have been it would it would have been one of his like very yeah it would have been yeah like, it would have been like his, an, one of an his all top time five classic yeah. yeah it would have been an absolute classic uh and you know granted i mean there's a part of me that's thankful that he held off on the rust never sleep stuff because the versions of those songs uh yeah. are is just are just marvelous and so to introduce them to the world that way i think was a much better uh treatment than they would have gotten here which is a funny thing to say because they're incredible here yeah. So there you go. Homegrown and Chrome Dreams. Uh, it's worth a mention again. Uh, Arturo alluded to it. All of this is on Neil Young's official YouTube channel. Uh, mm. His entire catalog, everything he's released is available through his uh, his Neil Young channel for free on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is why, you know, him not being on Spotify or distributing on X is not that big of a deal because yeah. it's all out there. Right. Uh, and so so extraordinary so let's just say you have like uh no life and no girlfriend and you just don't want to leave the house for four days go on youtube and listen to all this shit yeah you know definitely. but but we're we're doing some of the work so you don't have to work quite as hard so you know that's that's a public service and so you know we move on from those studio uh, uh nuggets and sort of what could have been great albums uh back into his growth as a performer uh, on the road so around 1977, he's starting to segue. He's starting to get a Country Jones again, you know, hearkening back to uh, Harvest and Homegrown. And so in the summer of 77, he's living in Santa Cruz or he had moved to Santa Cruz. And he's got a few buddies in the area, including two guys from the band Moby Grape. 
and a couple of local uh, musicians, uh, a singer-songwriter named Jeff Blackburn and a drummer named Johnny Craviato. And uh, they essentially, those four guys were just like local dudes that were like bar band guys that like they had their own songs and the very sort of country is very birds influenced and very, uh, very outlaw country influenced. And, you know, Neil is becoming friends with these guys. And I guess Blackburn calls up Neil one day and says, hey, Neil, you want to come play a bunch of shows with us around the Santa Cruz area? <laughs> and Neil's like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, because, you know, Neil's working on his new stuff and, you know, he's, you know, it, it just kind of a fun thing. Now, they couldn't for contractual reasons, as I understand it, they couldn't uh, tour outside of Santa Cruz. Uh, because of uh, uh, obligations. Crazy Horse basically was his only touring band. Uh, yeah. And that was something that I think the label uh, was enforcing uh, at, at and the, uh, his concert promoters were enforcing at the time. So uh, so for three months in the summer of 77, he did uh, the Ducks. That's what they were known as, the Ducks. And this was uh, Neil and his buddies, Jeff Blackburn and Bob Mosley and Johnny Craviato. Uh, they, uh, they did a bunch of gigging at bars and clubs, uh, including yeah. the catalyst, which is a, you know, thousand seat venue in, uh, uh, in Santa Cruz. And so this is a compilation from those shows. This is called high flying and it's another, uh, release from the official bootleg series. Uh, and, uh, high flying it's, it's a couple of discs. It's, it's pretty long, but it's a lot of fun. And all four guys contributing songs and Neil bringing out old black, the, the 53 it, Gibson Les Paul that is all over. Everybody knows this is nowhere and Zuma and those. Yeah. And so basically it's Neil Young as the lead guitarist in your bar band <laughs> and just absolutely rip, rip roaring, just bashing the fuck out and just, just going to town uh, as a soloist. And so a lot of fun listening to that. And not only that, but it ends up being a laboratory for some of his own stuff. Uh, Little Wing, which is another one of those unreleased uh, studio record, you know, uh, songs that never made it to a studio album. No, it's not Hendrix's Little Wing. He had his own song called Little Wing. Uh, there's a cover of that here. Uh, there's really fun covers of Human Highway or versions of Human Highway and Sail Away. Uh, you know, Human Highway is about as cheesy as it gets from Comes a Time. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, in terms of how it's done there, it's it's just it's this real like like hokey ditty, but here it's just straightforward country rock, almost like Flying Burrito Brothers style. And same thing with Sail Away, which gets the real sort of pop, lovely treatment, you know, duet with Nicolette Larson treatment uh, in the studio, and that showed up on Russ Never Sleeps. Here again, it's just a straightforward little country rocker uh, with soloing from Neil and just like a real edge uh, to it. Uh, there's also a really kick-ass version of Are You Ready for the Country yeah. from uh, Harvest on here, where it's just him bashing out. Right. And then the highlight in terms of the Neil stuff is these guys doing the most reverent cover imaginable of Mr. Soul, where it, <laughs> it, it outdoes. It's basically the same arrangement as the Buffalo Springfield version uh, from right. 66 or 67. And they just take it to, to, to new heights. And it's just Neil. Just You can tell he's having a blast. That here he is. Oh, I get to pretend like I'm in just some you know, just some random band called the Ducks, and I'm bringing <laughs> out one of the great rock songs ever made, and just absolutely just de destroying. I'm playing Godzilla on stage for yeah. like seventy people, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, really, really uh, 
I wouldn't say it's not the best of these things, but it's it's a fun chapter for Neil where, you know, he's gigging around for a couple months. And, you know, the story there is that he eventually left uh, left the band and you know went back and doing his own thing. The other guys tried to carry on as their own band, but, uh, you know, uh, quickly petered out. And so we're left with this testament of when Neil joined a bar band in Santa Cruz. Uh, Art, any thoughts? Yeah, this is really a fun collection. I like it. If aliens came down to visit Earth and asked what country-tinged rock and roll from California in the 1970s sounds like, you would play them this. (laughs) Or better yet, you'd play them this as the mid-level roadside diner version you would play them the eagles for the gourmet version <laughs> well yeah um, or or the fine burrito brothers yeah <laughs> right you know yeah. it's interesting how much of this actually sounds a lot of it actually sounds like later period moby grape yep. when they went full throttle into country rock gee i wonder why bob mosley's in the band <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah and it and it turns out uh, another guy from moby grape uh, the the lead singer of moby grape was a friend of uh of Neil's as well. I don't yeah. think he he ends up on any of these songs, but uh, no, Mo- Mo- Moby Grape was instrumental in uh, in in playing some of this stuff. So yeah, th- it's no coincidence that Mo- late period Moby Grape sounds a whole lot like the Ducks and vice versa. <laughs> you know, so uh, really really great stuff. So and so now uh, we're going to uh, summarize the next uh, thirteen years or twelve years in between records uh, in between. Uh, entries on this list between numbers eight and nine this way <laughs> uh so you know obviously he had his triumph with russ never sleeps in 19 you know the recordings from 1978 but then he he you know he had his 80s slump where he was yeah. trying to he was trying on new suits and granted he was raising a kid that had was severely stricken with cerebral palsy so maybe it's understandable that- like many people of his era in the 1980s Paul McCartney, Joni Mitchell, just everybody. Yeah. They all suffered from 80s-itis. Yeah, they all suffered from 80s-itis. How to stay relevant. And yeah. in Neil, and in Neil's cases, his his uh, idea of staying relevant was to not stay relevant. Yeah. Uh, if it wasn't for Farm Aid, uh, Neil would have had a terrible 80s. <laughs> you know, he... he hey, well, hey, Free, Freedom's a good album. That came out in 1989. Yeah, 89. He ended it strong, but 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 yeah. before then, it's like, oh, you know, let's have the techno record. Oh, let's have the Rockabilly record. Oh, let's have the jazz record. Uh, yeah. And it just, it was really, really uh, tacky. There are a couple of uh, uh, albums worth a mention that uh, from this archive series uh, that he's got one uh, performance from 1984 with his country band, the International Harvesters, uh, that yeah. is available. Uh, it's forgettable. Uh, you can avoid it. It's it's him, basically him doing cowpole stereotypical country. It's almost yeah. insulting. You know, yeah. if I'm if I'm a real country artist, I'm I'm kind of insulted by it. And then the the Blue Notes, which was his jazz band that he toured with in 1988 to support this notes for you. Yeah. And again, some of those songs on this notes for you are pretty good. I just the the jazz treatment, yeah, yuck. You know, like, this like is bad, badly produced, bad and, 19- and badly produced. Yeah, bad nineteen yeah. eighties reverb heavy production of jazz rock. It's like what the fuck? Yeah, 
which is which is kind of funny because that bad reverb uh, production serves freedom the next year really well. It's the same. <laughs> it's the same producer, but it you know it's it's the material and also the material's like better. Yeah, and well, Neil's inspired guitar playing on you know the kind of the yeah. guitar noise that was his yeah. return to guitar noise. But anyway, so those are a couple of testaments from that period. Forgettable. You know, you can kind of skip over uh, that. Well, he starts to get reborn in uh, 1989 with Freedom, where, uh, you know, apparently the election of George Bush uh, gets him really uh, focused on uh, social issues. And he comes up with Rockin' in the Free World and Crime in the City and uh, some of those great songs. He also uh, fell back in love with the mythical West with El Dorado and, you know, some of, you know, some of that stuff uh, as well. Well, the next year is when he was fully back. And mm. he got inspired and he got Crazy Horse together at his ranch in California and they bashed out Ragged Glory, which is yeah. one of the best albums of the 1990s by anybody. Uh, and just just wonderful songwriting, wonderful playing and just loud. It is a loud record and it's one of the more marvelously loud records you'll ever hear. Well, at the end of 1990, uh Neil and Crazy Horse are preparing to go on a world tour uh, where they're going to play arenas in the U.S. and in Europe and in other points. And so as a rehearsal show, (laughs) as a warm up show on November 13th, 1990, uh, they play the Catalyst in Santa Cruz. And the Catalyst, again, it's about a thousand seat venue. Uh, About about, about 800 to a thousand. It's it's like a big, big nightclub. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like a big nightclub. It's like testament to like to like the knitting factory or something like yeah. or actually well, Irving Plaza. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like that. About yeah. about that size in New York City for those folks that have that reference, or like or like some of the, you know, whatever the the big clubs in Philly and and uh mm. DC are like the metro in DC. Uh yeah. it's kind of it's kind of like that. Uh but anyway, so here they are for the warm-up show. And uh, this is uh, documented on an album called Way Down in the Rust Bucket, which just came out two years ago. And you want to talk about bashing the fuck out. Yeah. And and this is Neil at the, the, Neil's never been greater. Uh, you you want to hear Neil as a lead guitarist and as a soloist. Mm. Uh, get Way Down in the Rust Bucket and that's all you'll ever need. Because yeah. it's like one marvelous solo after another. He is just on. I mean, kick-ass version of Danger Bird, which was, you know, goes back to Zuma. Uh, obviously, killer version of Cortez the Killer. Uh, they The album opens with Country Home, which is the opener for Ragged Glory. And he's killer there. Fucking Up mm-hmm. is great. Uh, even the soloing on Homegrown, which is mm-hmm. like the hokiest song in the world. But the soloing on that is unbelievable. It's jaw-dropping. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, and so uh, everything on that album just works. It's Neil at the absolute height of his powers. They did three sets that night. It's a long ass show. Uh, it ends with three 13 minute long workouts <laughs> at, at the end. Yeah. And so the, they saved the longest for last. Uh, and, you know, it, talk about your encore. And so remember, this is the rehearsal show in, in advance of the tour that birthed Weld and Ark, which, uh, uh, there's more enthusiasm for those shows by other Neil heads or for those uh, records. Uh, I'm not a huge Weld fan, with the exception of the version of Crime on the City on that. Yeah. And then Ark is just shit. Yeah. Uh, it just it basically it's like, you know, it, like Neil. Oh, uh, Lou Reed can do metal machine music. Hold my beer. 
yeah. uh, is essentially what's going on there. But again, so this is supposed to be the rehearsal show. And he's like on, on like, you know, like the most on that you can imagine him being. And so uh, I think of all of the, the records that I've done here of all 10 that I'm covering or well, 11. Uh, this is the most essential of the live recordings, uh, I think. Yeah, for folks. probably. Just, just to, to hear, because like, you know, like Neil, Neil would just have those days where he could just roll out of bed and just everything he did was just jaw dropping. Right. And this is an example of it. I'm I'm assuming you agree, Arturo. Yeah, this is one of my favorites of the Hulk archival concert series. However, I do have a bone to pick with this one. The word I come up to, I come up with to describe this show is epic at well over two hours. You know, I I wonder if the shows he did on his Weld tour from 1991. Oh, yeah, they're they're famously long. Yeah. Yeah. However, when Neil released this in 2021, apparently there was an accompanying DVD that included one extra song that the audio version doesn't have. Oh, yeah. Cowgirl. A a lengthy version of Cowgirl in the Sand. I hate it when live recordings are not complete. I've said this before. You know, it also begs the question. Why is Neil Young or anyone releasing DVDs in the year 2021? Yeah. Shouldn't this have gone straight <laughs> to a streaming service? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if I were subscribed to Netflix or Disney Plus, I, I'd watch this, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, and, and that's the thing. And there is video from the show, like uh, like Homegrown on YouTube. It's not yeah. just the music. It's a video of, the, of them playing it. And it's actually right. the live record. It's just, you know, yeah. just filmed. Uh, not not the soundboard version, but a filmed uh, right. like in in the uh, arena or in the theater version of, of Homegrown. Yeah. Uh, from what I understand and from what I've read about that version of Cowgirl in the Sand that got left off, they had a, a an issue with the soundboard. Yeah. Uh, and so it kind of got chopped off, but they did get it on video. Mm. Uh, and so so the idea is that they didn't want to compromise it. Uh, and so they left it off of uh, yeah. they left it off of, of the uh, the audio uh, album. But man, I'm telling you, it's just uh, Young is a superhero, and yeah. uh, this and maybe Odeon Budokan prove it the most mm. uh, out, out of these. The, the guy's an absolute superhero. So uh, moving on. So uh, Neil in the, in the '90s had a renaissance phase that uh, guys are guys our age. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks to bands like Pearl Jam, uh, yeah. we're kind of the gateway drug to find you know Neil Young and the Who and the Wipers and the meat and the Meat Puppets and and other yeah. bands uh, like that. So he has a little bit of a renaissance, uh, which ironically enough, uh, you know, he starts to get the Godfather of Grunge tag in '91. Well, yeah. he comes out with his most commercially successful record since Harvest with Harvest Moon, which yeah. again was another very commercially sound country uh, rock record. Uh, that had a couple of big hits and a big wedding favorite in Harvest Moon, which I never understand because it's about <laughs> a it's it, it's a song about trying to resurrect a long term relationship as opposed to a new relationship. You know, like, like when people pick wedding songs, they really ought to listen to the lyrics, you know, uh, <laughs> like the police every breath you take, which yeah. is about being a stalker. <laughs> yeah. Or a band of horses. No one's going to love you, which yeah. uh, is very ambiguous. It may actually be about a divorce. Yeah, uh, yeah, rather than a marriage. Uh, so just but anyway, that was a, a digression. So uh, so he he comes up with Harvest Moon and then he segues into Sleeps with Angels. He does, a, a, which is a marvelous record, uh, includes a tribute to uh, to 
uh, Kurt Cobain called Sleeps with Angels, but it also, but it kind of, I think, uh, like for a lot of people, uh, Cobain's death scared the shit out of Young, and he comes up with his, the best album he did in 15 years. Yeah. Uh, at that point, just really great yeah. stuff. And then from there, he actually got together with Pearl Jam for mm-hmm. an album and a tour the next year. Uh, the album was called Mirrorball. Great stuff. Uh, but then from there, it started to wane a little bit. Uh, he's got Broken Arrow, which has some great stuff on it and some not so great stuff on it. It's very, uh, very uneven. He takes four years off and he releases an album called Silver and Gold, which is mostly unreleased uh, you know, stuff that was in his songbook. And I think, uh, yeah. I think it's his last great album. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very, very good album. I wouldn't say his last good one. We'll get to that uh, here yeah. in a bit. But uh, but he has a, a good streak going. And then it ends. And uh, it ended kind of unceremoniously in 2001 when he released the album. It's an album called Are You Passionate? And it, he recorded this with Booker T and the MGs. Now, you would think that'd be really exciting. Oh, Neil, Booker T in the, oh, you know, Neil and Steve Cropper. Ooh, you know, or, or you know, with Booker T on organ. Ooh, nope. What a piece of shit. Uh, yeah. with, the, with the exception of the song Let's Roll, which is about uh, uh, the 9-11 uh, Flight 93 uh, tragedy. Right. Uh, other than that, the rest of it is a real yawn fest and real just hokey and, and cheesy. Well, it turns out uh, Are You Passionate was not the originally intended release. <laughs> big shock huh and yeah. so th- this is another instance kind of like those studio albums we talked about where the much better studio uh, album that he recorded before are you passionate called toast was put on the shelf now again this is kind of like in the, the vein of time fades away going away off, out of print for 30 years uh he was having some issues with his second wife peggy at the yeah. time and half the songs are about his desperation about trying to resolve that or it's lamentations about what they've lost and desperation to try to get it back. Well, it turns out Neil was like, well, that's kind of a bum trip of an album. I don't want to put that out. You know, it's a little, little, little too personal, a little too, you know, touches a little too close to home, literally. So he decided to put that on the mothballs and do, are you passionate? Although several of the songs in different form, uh, did show up on Are You Passionate? Uh, needless to say, there's a couple of the best songs on that record, that piece yeah. of shit. Uh, but Toast is a really, really strong album. It's it's a Crazy Horse record, but it's the, the Crazy Horse guys at their most understated. It's basically they're there to just supply a surprisingly quiet bed of just plain old rhythm stuff for Neil to just you know, do his swinging, uh, almost like low lurking. It was almost like a slow killer lurking guitar, uh, bit, uh, that he's doing throughout these songs and just really, uh, great twisting, uh, you know, uh, emotional solos, especially on album opener quit, uh, just really gently swaying. And, uh, then the album closer is boom, boom, boom which uh, shows up on Are You Passionate as She's a Healer. Uh, There, it's an awkward nine-minute rumble with Booker Mm -hmm. T and the MGs. Uh, Here, it's just textbook uh, Crazy Horse. It's 13 minutes long. It's menacing. It's boiling in intensity. But again, Crazy Horse seems to barely be there. They're just content to let young soloing be the star uh, rather than the sludge. And then there's also a really great uh, song on there called Standing in the Light of Love, which is kind of in in that vein of over and over uh from uh, ragged glory and crime in the city the uh the version the live version of it from uh from weld 
it just has that just bash out quality to it and and it just has speedy desperation uh to it so uh, i was really impressed with this record surprise i thought it would be also a piece of crap but he could have kept it going he could have kept you know whatever momentum he had gotten from the 90s going but he basically killed he he shot himself in the foot wouldn't yeah. you agree eh you know yeah. i mean listen somewhere along the line Someone forgot to remind Neil Young that breakup albums are usually among an artist's best work, if yeah. not their best work. Uh, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, Marvin Gaye's Hear My Dear, Blur's 13, Beck's Sea Change, Lucinda yeah. Williams' West. It's actually a pretty proud tradition in popular music. Now, while this album, uh, Toast, is nowhere near as good as any of those... Uh, you're right. It's much better than the ill-advised old school R&B schlockfest. That was the album that came out of its place. 2002, not 2001, 2002's yeah. R&B Passionate. Yeah. Let, 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 let's Roll went out as a single towards the end of the year. That's right. why I, exactly. I, that's why I confused yeah. the years because right, they, right. They, they, they rush release Let's Roll because of the news. Yeah, the 9-11 thing, right. Yeah. Nevertheless, even with Toast, you can hear the beginning of Young's decline into bland, repetitive recycling of himself. Uh, some of his guitar work here is beautiful and quite lyrical, but uh, the songwriting, no matter how personal it is and how it documents uh, the, the coming end of his marriage, which wouldn't happen until 2014 is when they formally divorced. Yeah. Uh, yet the songwriting, in my opinion, just doesn't really land and often feels a little too trite and sentimental rather than emotional. Um, th that's what I'm left with this album. Really great guitar playing. He, he really puts yeah. his heart in there. Uh, but yeah, like you're, said, right. you're right. Exactly. Right. Crazy Horse sounds too distant. They sound like they're way too much in the background, and it's yeah. just a little too sentimental music. Yeah, the, the songwriting wise. You're 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 right. I mean that, that that's what prevents it. I mean it's it's four stars at best, probably more objectively more between three and three and a half. Uh, yeah. Because of some of that triteness in the middle, there's a couple of there's a couple of throwaways in there. But but again, it's worth it for the soloing because Neil Neil is in rare form as a soloist on, on you know, he hadn't soloed like that on a record probably uh, since Ragged Glory. Yeah, uh, you, you could say that where it's it's this sort of solo dominant uh, uh, performance. So, yeah. oh, well, like I said, it's just indicative of of Neil's magic ability to shoot himself in the foot uh, when it comes to what he releases. Uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, Arturo alluded to a little uh, while ago to, that he thinks that Silver and Gold is the last of the great Neil records. I disagree. I think it's 2003's Greendale. Uh, that is a marvelous record. It's a weird record, uh, but it's worth talking about a little bit here because our last entry on this list, our 10th list uh, uh, entry, is uh, something that was released here, I think it was in 2020, called Return to Greendale, which is a note-for-note -note live uh, version and rendition of the album that was recorded September 4th, 2003 at the Air Canada Centre in Toronto. I mean, it's a, this is an album that was made for arenas. Uh, but Greendale, so let me just do the straight uh, talk of or the, the straight uh, narrative or the summary of what the album's about. Uh, so basically, it's a small, sleepy, one horse town that, you know, isn't really growing too much with the times. And you've got grandpa who's, you know, yells at the TV and yells at the newspaper. You've got you've got the farmer and his wife and they've got their kid. But their kid is a little bit of a rebel. 
And uh, one night he's out uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, ship some drugs, gets stopped by a cop, cop uh, gets shot and killed. Uh, and the media uh, converges upon the family's house of the, the family of the murderer. And uh, grandpa uh, especially like just rages against the media and how exploitive they are and blah, 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 blah. Well, the, the young daughter, a woman named Sun Green. Uh, she gets so alienated, she goes out on the run and she goes on the run and tries to save the planet. Literally, she ends up in Alaska for a, a closing number called Be the Rain, where it's talking about the ecology and about celebrating what we're about to lose because of climate change. Mm. Now, that sounds like garbage <laughs> when, <laughs> when, I, when I talk about it, but it's a really, really, really great record in the sense that uh, so Frankie uh, San Pedro. Uh, sits out and it's just uh, Neil with Billy Talbot and Ralph Molino. This is the studio record. And it's just, it's them. Uh, it's more or less, it's, it's Neil sort of telling the story and then even, you know, supplying voices uh, to the characters uh, in it. And it's not so much song so much as just like these riffs and it just kind of like repeating the riffs so that he can do the performance, but it adds up and it gets really hypnotic and again, there's some kick-ass soloing. Uh, there's some really nice uh, harmonica stuff on it. Uh, there's an acoustic ballad in the middle of it called Bandit, which I've, I've always liked. And then he's got one of his 20 best songs ever on it called Carmichael, which is a 10-minute plus long uh, song about the cop that was shot and about his wake and about his wife's uh, grief. It's a really, it comes out of nowhere, but it's a really affecting, really moving song with just wonderful soloing and just wonderful lyrics and just a, a really great melody uh, to it. So uh, I'm a huge fan of, of the record. Uh, I think that, you know, there's another song on it called sun green where we you know, kind of meet that character that just bashes the fuck out uh, as well. And so, uh, and so you, you get that. And uh, so what, so where I'm going with this, uh, eventually he, you know, he went on tour with this and boy, did yeah. he really go on tour with this. And it was, it's, it's, again, it sounds corny as hell, but he had actors out, you know, they would perform kind of in the I've dark seen the and, video. It's really and, corny, dude. Yeah. And they would have, they would have actors mouthing the, you know, like acting out the lyrics or like mouthing what Neil Young is saying. And it, it is really, really corny. It's, it's really just sort of, uh, it's, in a, in a way it's kind of ridiculous, but I think purposely ridiculous, uh, and so it's kind of like, you know, let, let's let's have a performance. And it's almost like he's making a like macabre theater out of what <laughs> he's doing. And so, it, it, you know, the part of it is but, you know, part of the thing about Greendale, the way it plays is it's so earnest in spots. You're not actually sure if it's a satire or not. I mean, the grandfather character. Yes. Uh, but like be the rain, I don't think is satire. <laughs> Carmichael yeah. is not satire. Uh, but so this live version return to Greendale, it's the same record, but it's just done a lot better, you know, out of the confines of the studio. It's a lot more resonant. I think it's, it's more slow burn. Uh, there's more passion in Neil's voice. I think there's more consistency between the songs. Uh, there's less gimmickry, uh, in the production. I think Brendan O'Brien might've had something to do with the production. And so, you know, just, just him playing it and just doing it straightforward, uh, really lends it an air of gravitas. I think it it needs to be heard. I think it's uh, one of the great lost albums of the aughts. 
Uh, and like I said, in my opinion, Neil's last great record. I know that there's people out there that think Psychedelic Pill from 2009 uh, probably deserves. Are they, uh, that's 2014, I think. 2014. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm confusing it with. And, and I agree with yeah. you. That album, Psychedelic Pill, is really not that good. It's just. Yeah, it's just, there's there's some people that like it. I don't. Uh, I think yeah. it. I think it's plotting. And so, you know. but but I, I would say that this is the last great record, and this live version is definitely worth checking out. As a matter of fact, I I would just say, you know, skip the studio record and go right to the live record. Uh, it's it's great. Yeah, I've the album. It's you know the, the 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 studio album. I've never been as enthusiastic about this album as you are. Um, it's your classic Neil Young and Crazy Horse sound, but with more sentimental <laughs> surprise, surprise toast leaking over uh sentimental faux nostalgic lyrics about an idealized america oh the humble oh the salt of the earth oh the forgotten working class Ugh, yawn <laughs> but yeah i'll grant you the live version of this album has a little more kick and energy than the studio recordings nevertheless this was the period in neil's career where he started to get too preachy and sanctimonious for his own good and um, also, whether live or in the studio, the Crazy Horse vibe just lacks the fire that it had just 13 years earlier, you know, and, and as we've already discussed. I mean, these guys are in their 60s by this point, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. okay, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'd rather hear, you know, younger acts who are more inspired by Crazy Horse, you know, take the torch, you know, yeah. from them at this point. Yeah, and I, I think that, that Neil kind of uh, plays his hand on that because notice that uh, of all the archive stuff that's come out, uh, this is actually I think like the the latest uh, in yeah. time, right? Uh, of of at least the the live album releases and right uh, and even even the uh, the studio uh, releases. He he mm -hmm. doesn't have anything uh, that I think he's released post two thousand three. Now I don't right. know if he's got plans to or not, but this is pretty much the uh, the the end of the line to there. So, uh, so what we've just covered, folks, uh, takes us from 1969 through 2003. Uh, these are ten of the highlights uh, that uh, you know we definitely recommend. I think uh, for me, I think that the high points would be Tuscaloosa, uh, High Flying, which is the Ducks record, and. Uh, uh, way down in the rust bucket, which is the uh, which is the Rag of Glory show. Do you have any? Uh, what what would you be your personal favorites from the list, Arthur? Yeah, Arturo? some of these I have in my personal collection. Um, obviously, way down in the rust bucket, the 1990 live show, the Tuscaloosa show, Tuscaloosa show, the Fillmore East uh, 1970 show, and um, I yeah, the Royce Hall show is good, but give me Toronto '71. I'll take that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I just, for, I, I chose Royce Hall because of the sugar. Ultimately it was the sugar mountain uh, right. bit that, that, right. that really did it for me over that. So uh, if you want to do your own research, folks, a good starting point is there's a, a Wikipedia page that kind of gives an overview of all the pieces uh, so far uh, that have been released and are planned to be released uh, from the archive set on Wikipedia. We will link to that page in our show notes uh, that we uh, post when we when we put up our episodes and uh, I would say that would be a good starting point and then yeah just go to Neil Young channel it's just one word Neil Young channel on YouTube and literally everything Neil's pretty much ever released is on that channel and yeah. so you so you can spend as much time as I did <laughs> you know uh, plumbing through the archives and and picking out uh, uh, these records uh, you really can't go wrong uh, with any of these 
Uh, it's just mm-hmm. it it really paints a picture of a singular artist and and my favorite uh, solo artist of all time. With that said, folks, uh, like we do at the end of these episodes, we encourage you to join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. It's a fabulous page. Uh, Paul Margok uh, just uh, released or just put up his own uh, post. Uh, thank you, Paul, that we need more of that. Uh, it's uh, pretty vibrant for those of us that are uh, frequent flyers on there. Arturo continues to release his uh, uh, all-time great studio records by year. Uh, 1994 is up next. So uh, yes. check, us, check us out there. Uh, uh, Facebook.com slash group slash curmudgeon rock. Uh, also, shoot us a line if you have any quibbles with what we've said here about uh, the Young Archives or if there's something that you think is better or more notable than anything I've said, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we're still on Twitter, although not as excited as we used to be about it. There's still a few good follows like Mike Mills uh, from REM. He's a great follow, but that's starting to whittle away. And then uh, we'll likely put together some, some Spotify playlists. Uh, we owe you a few folks, but we're aware of that. So uh, look out for those here in the coming days. 